You want to go ahead and read the thing? I do want to go ahead and read the thing. All right. Outside the town of Truckee, California, the Lincoln Highway ascends the eastern flanks of the Sierra Nevada mountain range in a series of sharp curves and switchbacks. At the pass, it's a lofty 7,000 feet above sea level, and there's a place for travelers to stop and snap a selfie against the pine forest, blue lake, and the rounded outcrop of bare rock dropping down from either side of the highway. From here, it's less than 100 miles to the city of Sacramento on the other side of the Sierras, and it can be done in an hour and a half by car, as long as that warm weather holds. However, when the temperatures fall below freezing, this little mountain pass becomes one of the snowiest places in the United States. Signs along the highway warn winter drivers of avalanches, falling ice, and sudden heavy snows, and the police give tickets to vehicles trying to navigate the pass in winter without snow chains and all-wheel drive. The average winter here yields 34 feet of snowfall, but especially snowy winters with drifts of 70 feet have been recorded. And it's not just snow. Winter storms in the past come with 100-mile-an-hour winds and some of the coldest temperatures ever recorded in California. A jaded traveler might take the road over the pass without pausing to admire the view. But if they should stop at the turnout for the nearby state park, they might come across a bronze statue. Perched atop a stonework pedestal, the statue depicts four people, a man, a woman, and two children, gazing westward across the pass. They are dressed in boots and warm clothing, and all of them, even the infant, look healthy and determined. The plaque below reads, Virile to risk and find, kindly withal and a ready help, facing the brunt of fate, indomitable, unafraid. But it's not quite the right caption to the story of the 87 people who found themselves trapped here in the winter of 1846 through 1847. In fact, it's not even close. On this episode of Relative Disasters, the story of the very ill-fated and woefully underprepared Donner Party. Greg, that was so good. I, I appreciate your expertise with these readings. There at the end of that one. Yeah, I heard it, and I think it adds. <laughs> I think it adds. <clears throat> All right. Welcome to Relative Disasters, the show where my brother and I manage our existential dread by talking about terrible and interesting historical events and their context implications and any related sidebars we feel like discussing. I'm Ella. I'm the chair of the Hope for the Best, Plan for the Worst committee here at Relative Disasters Cartographic Institute. And I'm her brother, Greg, the Covered Wagon Safety Director here at Relative Disasters Travel Agency. Oh, congrats on that new job. Yeah, you know, Love it. it's fun. Uh, today we are discussing the Donner Party. Yeah. And our main source for this episode is the 1934... Telling of the tale by George R. Stewart called Ordeal by Hunger. I chose to read the really old, out-of-date, problematic book. Yeah. There are much better, more nuanced. <laughs> I was kind of wondering, yes, there's a uh, lot of books them that you could read. That are better. I feel like most people don't know this story as like some, you know, brave settlers moving onward. I, I think most people, when they hear Donner Party, they think, oh, right, the people who ate each other. Yeah, and the cannibalism is a huge part of I this mean, mess. <laughs> it, you can't gloss over the cannibalism. No, but I would argue it's not the most interesting thing that happened. And that's exactly, I would agree with you on that. And that is exactly why I think this is going to be an interesting episode. Because uh, while there, there definitely were people eating other people. Uh, yep, can't get around it. 
that is certainly not the, the the most interesting part of this. So I don't think so. All right. Alrighty. So today we are talking, of course, about the Donner Party's 1846 attempt to travel by covered wagon from Missouri to California. Yes. Uh, this resulted in one of the worst episodes of American Pioneer Folklore, yep. in which we can find, let's see, arrogance, yep. ignorance, yep. Uh, poor planning, yep. provisioning for the wrong things, <laughs> under-provisioning, some really misplaced optimism, misplaced faith, uh, a bad guidebook, yeah, and some pretty hardcore parenting, as well as cannibalism, yeah. as you mentioned. Yeah. But before we get to the dead children and the cannibalism, we have to start with Lansford Warren Hastings. Have you ever heard of this? Story? I have heard of Lansford Hastings. He he was from Ohio, right? Uh, he has the not uncommon ambition to create his own country to reign over. That's the driving force through most of his adult life. Okie doke. He wants his own country. Uh, he was kind of an explorer. He liked California. He wanted to run California as his own country. He gets this idea like somewhere <laughs> around 1840, and that's when he starts working on the book. Uh, and his book is actually okay. So it says it's a guidebook, and it does have guidebooky things in it. I'm going to put a link to it in the show notes, so you can look at it's it. It's as much of a guidebook as uh, Sketch of the Mosquito Shore is uh, a. Uh... Oh my god! It reminded me so much. The <laughs> right? only difference between Poyer and uh, California is that California is a real California place. California exists. People really did yes, move that's there. true. Yeah. That's true. Which is really a minor difference but when you look at the pros. The Emigrants' <laughs> Guide to Oregon and California is—it's just so like I—it's—it's mm, it's wonderfully wrong about everything. I like the maps. That's my favorite. Oh my part. god! They're yes, hilarious. the maps that aren't actually yeah. <laughs> Uh, so this book is wildly popular. It's a bestseller. It is one of the big factors in westward expansion. Yep. Woohoo! Yeah. Uh, that's the idea, of course, in the 1840s and 50s. It really caught on. Uh, the idea that Americans have the right or, you know, maybe it's more of a duty to go west and establish themselves on uh, land that they didn't own or have any legal right to that was already being used and lived on by Native Americans and Mexican citizens. So, Well, if we can't occupy the entire continent, then what's the point of even living here? What is the point? This book is exactly pretty much what you would expect it to be, since I know you own and have read a copy of <laughs> the Poye book. I do. My sister got it for me. I'm going to give you a little quote. Okay. Lay it on me. This is... Uh, this is our friend, Lansford Warren Hastings, describing California. Quote, in a word, I will remark that in my opinion, there is no country in the known world possessing a soil so fertile and productive, with such varied and inexhaustible resources, and a climate of such mildness, uniformity, and salubrity. Nor is there a country, in my opinion, now known, which is so eminently calculated by nature herself in all respects to promote the unbounded happiness and prosperity of civilized and enlightened man. There it is. End quote. I love those words. Civilized and enlightened are like the best exclusionary words made up in the English language. Yeah, you really start to form a little picture in your head when you hear those, Mulbutt. don't you? Mulbutt. <clears throat> Mulbutt. Sadly, Lansford does not become the king of California. Yeah. It's too bad. Moment of silence. Yep. Moment of silence <laughs> for the kingdom of Lansford. Yeah, we would have to wait for California to get an emperor uh, a couple more, a couple years after that. Until uh, Mr. Norton. Exactly. Yeah, he's on his way, but he's not there no, yet. No. <clears throat> okay. 
So he does not become the emperor, but he does such a good job at selling people on immigration that he starts to make a living by leading wagon trains of American settlers on the California Trail, which is a new-ish trail that kind of branches off from the Oregon Trail. Okay. In the book, he gets a little ahead of himself and <laughs> proposes a shortcut. Mm-hmm. Okay, the called the Hastings <laughs> Cutoff. <laughs> now, <clears throat> you're thinking that since he was an explorer and a wagon train leader, he had been on this cutoff and he had traveled it and could tell you about it. One would think, yes. You would be wrong. (laughs) This is a theory. I don't mean to laugh. I really don't mean to laugh because this is a horrible, horrible thing to do to people. But will we ever get tired of grifters on this show? Because I don't think we will, man. We've got a couple good ones in this episode, but uh, Hastings is on his own level. He really is. He's basically telling everybody, take this beautiful, safe, transcontinental highway, and when they arrive, it's a dirt road down one, down one way with a bunch of do not enter signs. Yeah. Oh, honey, it's not a road. No, no, it's not. It's, yeah. It's not a road at the all. The Hastings cutoff is, eh, it's gross. Anyway. He's got a lot of big plans. He can't really be bogged down in the details. Yeah. He's not a detail man. Fair enough. Fair enough. Fair enough. Such as seeing as if this cutoff actually worked i mean okay on the map what you do is you draw a straight line from the edge of wyoming to the edge of california yep and uh, on the map it looks like it's going to work because part of what's between wyoming and california is a desert basically you just have to walk across it and everybody knows that famously deserts are very easy to cross yes absolutely Uh, very quick very quick absolutely nothing goes wrong ever with wagon trains and uh, livestock. Yep. Oh, yeah. Plenty, plenty to, to eat, drink, plenty to drink, actually, because you've got that huge lake yeah, right yeah, there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The Great Salt Lake. It's it's full of delicious water. Slightly flavored. Oh, shoot. It's not salty, is it? <laughs> well, that's not on the map, is it, Hazel? No. Okay, sorry. It sucks. <laughs> anyway. The Donner Party. The Donner Party. They consist of about 90 people, give or take. There are people who join up and people who leave and people who die, obviously. But the number, the complete number of people in the Donner Party never exceeds 90. Okay. So the numbers that I saw are between 88 and 90. Okay. They're mostly from Springfield, Illinois. And they are led by James Reed. Yes. Sometimes this is called the Donner Reed Party. Right. The Donners kind of distance themselves from the Reeds. You'll see why. Yeah. Uh, But in the beginning, they're kind of neighbors and acquaintances. They're not exactly friends. They know each other, but they're not, you know, visiting for tea. Right. James Reed is supposedly a businessman. He's a little sketchy. Yep. Uh, I read accounts that he was a very successful businessman and wanted to go out west to kind of enlarge his empire. Okay. I also read that he was fleeing from creditors with everything he could That's carry. That's what I had read as well. <laughs> so I expect the truth is somewhere mm, in the middle. Mm. But at any rate, he builds this huge wagon. Okay. He has his entire family. He's got his mother-in-law, his wife, his kids, his stepkids. Okay. Uh, the Donners are wealthy farmers. They're older than Reed. They're in their kind of late 50s, early 60s. Nobody's really sure. Okay. Again, wives, children including some very little ones. Yeah. A number of other families are traveling along kind of for safety. They're sure. not as large or well provisioned as the daughters. So they're kind of like 
I don't know, what do you call it? Drifting in the wake. Okay, sure. <laughs> they're letting the Donners break the trail and then they're following along behind. Okay. Uh, so those include a widow with five kids from Tennessee. There is a Catholic family from Iowa with seven okay. kids. And a German immigrant named Louis Kiesberg, who is traveling with his toddler and pregnant wife. Okay. You're trying to imagine what these families look like together. I cannot emphasize enough how many children were along for this yeah. hellish 2,500-mile cross-country trip. Well, if you're if you're moving your whole family, you kind of got to bring the kids along. And this is still the era where, you know, every family had to have about 20 kids so that maybe two of them would survive to adulthood. So... I mean, by those metrics, this group does very, yeah, very well. <laughs> anyway, so of the 90 people who are in this group, 43 of them, almost half, are under 18. Jeez. And most of them are well under 18. Yeah. There are six kids under a year old. So in addition to all these kind of family members, there are a number of hired hands. So they've got uh, drivers for the oxen. They've got animal wranglers. Yep. They're they're driving along a ton of cattle, like 200 head. Jeez. Okay. And uh, Mr. Reed has also brought a cook, so... Great. There you go. <laughs> That's the kind of trip that Reed that, is making. That won't turn sinister later. Okay. He wants to have an adventure, but he also wants hot This meals. is like the people who go glamping, where, you know, you bring a generator with you when you go camping so you can still watch TV and get Wi-Fi. You know, I just, no. there are some glamping aspects to this that are just glaring. Okay. The Reeds and Donners supply for their trip following Hastings' book's advice. Now, Hastings plans for four months of supplies. He advises you to get something like 150 pounds of flour and 75 pounds of meat per person, and that's it. Okay. So they're bringing that, plus uh, things like rice, beans, sugar, flour, tea, coffee, tobacco. Okay. They do not have wagons loaded up with non-perishables, is what I'm, gotcha. what I'm trying to gotcha. tell you. They're depending on this cattle herd that they're driving along with them okay surely yeah. <laughs> surely that will be enough nothing will go wrong <laughs> got it got it got it so getting all that stuff together takes time and the donners and reeds leave independence a little late so they should have left in mid-april they leave somewhere around may 12th yeah they're traveling behind a huge wagon yeah train. like 500 the wagon wagons. train ahead of them is yeah like 500 yeah, it's a lot uh, of people and that's a safety in numbers thing, right? That's they're they're doing that so that they don't get harassed on the way across. Well, they don't have the option to kind of leave whenever they feel like it. It right. takes six months to get to California. They're taking the longest possible trip. They're not going <laughs> to stop halfway. Yeah, they're going all the way. Okay. So they really only have this window to get through before the winter right. comes. Right. And yeah, of course, there's safety in numbers. Uh, there's also more resources. The more people sure, there are, sure. the more chance you have someone who knows what they're doing. Yep. Spoiler, the Reeds and the Donners do not have anyone who knows what they're doing. That was some foreshadowing. I see. It was well done. It was well done. I like how you put Thank the you. spoiler warning right before saying it, too. <laughs> that was well done. It's so people can tune out if they need to. <laughs> so the first 450 miles go great. Sure. Right? They roll into Fort Laramie, Wyoming yep. in four weeks, which is actually a little fast. Nice. Nicely done, everybody. Good job. No no problems at all. Story ends there. No problems whatsoever. Happy. And then the rest of the trip was fine, yes. too. Yes. The end. Un uh, well, <laughs> there's a slight problem. <laughs> a few little bumps, yeah. Okay, so they have kind of a, 
a democracy, like a makeshift democracy. They elect George Donner to be in charge. Yeah. Yeah. George Donner is an older man. He's in his 60s. He gets along with everyone. He's seen as, quote unquote, a good Christian man. He's industrious. He's worked hard. He's raised kids. He seems like a nice guy, generally. He seems like a nice guy. He does not know how far over his head yeah, he is. No. I think that's the nicest way you he can He seems put like it. a nice guy. He has zero idea of how to travel across the terrain they're about to travel. But he's got ideas. Sure. And he has a lot of confidence in himself. So one of his main <laughs> motivations in moving to California is that he's interested in a milder winter as he gets older. Okie dokie. Okay. So uh, Springfield, Illinois, where he's from, gets cold in the winter. It gets snow. And when people talk to George Donner about there being snow ahead on the trail and how important it is not to get stuck in the snow, George Donner is thinking of Springfield, Illinois. Yeah, he's thinking of snow on the ground, not snow up past your shoulders. Snow you can shovel. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. You know? Snow you can shovel. Uh, But once they're on the road... (laughs) and George is in charge, they start hearing stories from other travelers, yeah. and they start to understand that the snow in Illinois is not the same as the snow on the last leg of their trip, which is still 2,000 miles away, and they are, even though they've made up some time, they're still weeks and weeks behind where they uh, should be. Uh, awesome. They're not really worried, because they feel very confident. Sure. But they do recognize that they need to make up some time. So when the Donner Party makes it to Fort Bridger, which is on the other side of Wyoming, they get their hands on one of Hastings' shortcut letters, and it seems like the perfect answer to their delay. All right, so instead of going north and around the end of the Sierra Nevadas with all the other people, they're going to head out straight across the Great Salt Desert and shave something like 400 miles off before they hop on the California Trail. That's That's the promise. That's the promise, yep. And and, and because Hastings... uh... The problem was is that Jim Bridger himself basically sent them on this this path. Like, there were letters yeah. in addition to Hastings telling them not exactly. to do this. There's a journalist Edwin ahead Bryant, of them who's been that, sending letters yes, back. Edwin Bryant yep. did did a yeoman's work here. He went to Black Fork, or sorry, Black's Fork, a week ahead of the Donner Party, and was like, "You're not getting wagons through that, especially not with kids involved." And left a bunch of letters saying Hastings is a snake oil artist. And uh, they're like, no, nah, this is, this seems fine. Well, no, it was more like Bridger was like, my fort is never going to take off if people see, keep bad-mouthing like right? this. If people keep pointing out that this is an incredibly dangerous thing, I will lose business, all right? How am I going to make a living How? Here? How? You can't interfere with, with business. I mean, he's just a, he's a businessman doing business. So somehow, <laughs> uh, those letters do not make it to the Donner Party and... George Donner is uh, instead given Hastings' letter, which is all about like, oh, this is wonderful. Please join us. Uh, Hastings is right ahead on this cutoff. He's got a train of about 40 wagons. And I think that must have been reassuring to them. Like he wasn't just handed a set of directions. He was told, follow our wagon ruts and we'll make it across. They don't really know how far ahead Hastings is. That is the problem. Okay, so they set off from Fort Bridger, and uh, this trail, which in the beginning is well-marked, immediately becomes not very obvious. They're forced to kind of look for, oh god, in another brilliant move, Hastings has left letters nailed to planks. (laughs) 
Oh, that's and fantastic. Then like laid the planks across the route God. that he was traveling. Letters on paper. Wow. So uh, you can imagine what they're finding. They're finding like nails and shreds of paper with partial directions. Excellent. Excellent. This yeah, is fine. It's, uh, it's great. And uh, they're off to a great start. They get off course a couple times. Now, they're in the part of the Wasatch Range where there are lots of box canyons. So what they would do is ride into the canyon thinking that there was a way out the other end and then just, Uh, yeah. And with wagons. So we're talking like tons of backtracking. They just keep getting like tangled up in this stuff because they can't really tell which way Hastings has gone. And to be fair, Hastings' train has gotten into some dead ends as well. Because again, he does not know where he's going. Yeah, exactly. This is the point where they get into the really, like, physical, heavy physical labor. Okay. Because in order to get the wagons through, they're chopping down trees and moving boulders and, like, dragging their wagons up these slopes that wagons were not designed to do and oxen don't want to do. This is a, this is a great trail, yeah. It's an awesome trail. I don't know why more people didn't take Hastings' amazing shortcut. Awful. Okay. So this is the point where people start to get really exhausted. Yep. And the wagons start breaking down. Okay. And of course the animals start dying yeah. because this is not <laughs> this is not a safe or healthy environment for a cow. Or anyone. So by the first week of September, they make it through this mess and they are heading onto the Great Salt Lake in what is now the northern end of the state of Utah. So they're not in the lake itself, they're on the salt flats to they're the They're in north. the Salt Lake yeah. Desert. Yeah, where they do the speed racing trials now. Oh, cool, 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 cool. They're not going to win a speed race, though. No. If you're crossing the northern end, Hastings advised it would be 40 miles. Okay. You would have to take, he said, two and a half days to cross it. Okay. Uh, This is actually a slight miscalculation on his part. It is 80 miles. Oh, my God. And the Donner Party takes six days to cross it. Okay. Again, they are under-provisioned, they do not have enough water, they do not have enough food. So at this point, it's been a month after they left Fort Bridger, right? About a month? They leave July 31st, so it's been August and then uh, a couple weeks in September, yeah. So, <laughs> so their shortcut uh, has, has put them... It added at least a month to their travel time, yeah. If they had stuck on the trail... Okay, well... Oh, we, we'll Spilt never milk. know. Spilt milk. We'll never know. <laughs> we'll never know, will we? Okay. <laughs> because they could have gotten stuck on the Oregon sure. Trail. I mean, people did. And then they had to ford? I played a lot of Oregon Trail. Oh, I was usually, yeah, I was usually dead of dysentery by the time we got to rivers. Oh, okay. Can't stop drinking that sweet, sweet... Dysentery water? Yep. Dysentery water, yum. Okay. Okay. All right. Uh, so they're only able to make it across this Great Salt Desert by losing a massive amount of their oxen and cattle and leaving some wagons God. behind. Okay. Stewart describes this absolutely just hellish parade of people, emaciated people, emaciated cattle, oxen who can't keep their heads up, yeah. uh, broken wagons, and of course all of the people are carrying a child yep. because yep. The children. that's what this party yep. is. Exactly. Uh, okay. It is astonishing that nobody dies on the salt flats, but they lose just a massive amount of their supplies. And cattle. And cattle. Ugh. Again, cattle are not built for... No, they're not built <laughs> for walking through a desert, little folks. little trip. I was surprised, too. I, I'm yeah. very surprised. Okay. 
But they do make it across. And on the other side, they do pick up Hastings's tracks. Okay. And they're traveling a little lighter. So they head into the Humboldt River Valley feeling pretty good. And this is where the weather starts to get a little cooler. Yep. So they're going as fast as they can towards the Sierra Nevadas and California. They lighten their loads. Ugh. They make everybody walk, like right down to the toddlers. And they start pushing their already exhausted oxen and livestock as fast as they can go. Yep. Which, which is, is not, very, not fast. very fast. Because again, there's no road. They're still moving boulders. Oh, they're still cutting down God. trees. So at the same time that they are traveling through the Humboldt River Valley, they're traveling slash trespassing across land occupied by the Paiute Native Americans yep. who start stealing their horses and cattle at night. I mean, if you're going to walk a hamburger through my house, I might take a bite out of it. Uh, George Stewart's book gets really gross when oh, he's I'm describing Oh, I'm sure this. it does. It's very much like savages stealing food from starving people. I was going to say, were, were they savages? Were they? Well, he gets a lot more slurry oh, about it. I he makes up some names slurs. for people and uh, does a lot of kind of cultural guessing uh -huh, that doesn't, uh -huh, mm -hmm. doesn't make it very good. Were they godless savages? So godless. Oh, God. You have no idea. Just... Uh, he does that because he sees it as a major factor in the hardships. Oh, ahead. sure, sure. I don't know if I agree that they would have been in better shape if they had been able to bring more cattle into the I feel like uh, the condition that them. they were in already, they were just going to have cows dropping dead every 20 feet anyway. Sure. Uh, sure. I don't know. But I also don't know that like stocking up on preserved food such as it yeah. was, like back in yeah, yeah. in Fort Bridger or whatever would have really made much of a difference. helped either because that stuff is heavy. Yeah. You still have to get it across the desert. Yep. So they're under a tremendous amount of stress when they start running out of food. Okay. And this is where the Donner Party starts separating into these little tribes. This is not a commune. Uh, it's very much every family for itself. Okay. And every family has a different amount of supplies. Oh, God. Okay. So everyone is super stressed. Everyone is kind of trying to figure out the resources that the others have managed to hold on yep. to after that long trip across the desert. And although there is some trade between families, uh, certain families are seen as being much better off. Sure. It's the immigrant families who are particularly struggling at this point. Yep. And remember, <laughs> this is not a big group of resourceful adults. Yeah, yeah. This is a bunch of parents trying to figure out how to keep their toddlers and young children and other livestock alive and moving forward as long as possible. I like how they're other livestock. That's, that's well done. In early October, there are actually a couple of violent incidents. So James Reed stabs a teamster to death. Oof. And at first, there's some talk of hanging him, even though he is one of the leaders of the group. Right. They end up not doing that because they can't figure out if they're still in the United States, like if the laws of the U.S. apply to them or if they should be like... <laughs> Can I just take like a two-second... It's like a two-sentence sidebar because this is one of the funniest things about this. Okay, so yeah, the continental out. divide uh, of the United States... Um, even though they were moving out there to settle it, it legally was not part of the United States. So the laws were not applicable west of the Continental Divide. So they couldn't figure out... Basically, they're squatters. Basically, they're squatters. And they can't figure out and, how illegal they exactly. are. Exactly. And they're trying to figure out, like, look, can we put this guy to death under United States laws or not because we're not in the United States anymore? And they were just like, okay, we don't know, so... You need to leave. Leave. Yeah. He basically just gets banished. But his daughter his his daughter gives him a gun. 
so he doesn't starve to death. You know, he actually has a really close relationship with his kids and his stepkids. Yeah. And it's his stepdaughter, Virginia, who, like, chases after him in the middle of the night and gives him a gun and a pony or something. Yeah. Uh, so he is able to actually make really good time since it's just him and a horse and a gun. Yeah. Well. Okay, so off he goes. Off he goes. He'll come back in later on. Uh, the family, the Reed family is allowed to stay. Right. Obviously, they weren't involved in the stabbing. Uh, but right after this happens, the German family, the Kiesbergs, they turn a fellow immigrant who had been riding yeah. with them because he was sick. They turn him yeah. out and. And he sits down beside a river with his feet so swollen that they had split open. This poor guy. He's from Belgium. He's yeah. 70 years old. What the hell? It's it's awful. This is when people really start to dislike Mr. Kiesberg, by the way. Like, he was kind of a jerk before this. And but... he was also the one leading the charge on hanging Reed as well. Oh, yeah. He loves a hanging. But, but yeah, they're not, they're, not, they're not happy with him after that. But they also don't do no. anything about it. Like, no other, no other wagon takes him in. It's, you know, it's every family for itself uh, at this yeah. point. Yeah, and it kind of has to be because there's no food. And remember, the Kiesbergs are traveling with a baby who's like two weeks old. And the other the other immigrants might have been, you know, like, well, Kiesberg threw this other this other man, Hardcoop, yeah. out of his wagon because he's a jerk. But it could also have been that they couldn't care for the baby yeah. properly yeah. if they had another person. Yeah, we're in the getting wagon. down into just like I don't know. pure survival, you know, uh, instinct, I guess. Uh, anyway. Yep. Oh, we're getting there, but we have a ways to go, <laughs> oh, don't we? Things get even worse. We're not at the bottom of the parabola get yet. So Oops. much worse. <laughs> nope. Okay. Okay. Here we go. So that's in early October. They make it to the foothills of the Sierra Nevadas, which they still have to cross <laughs> on October 20th. Now they can see the pass. This is not a super high pass. This is a 7,000 foot pass. Sure. We're not talking about like you could walk it climbing you Mount Everest. Yeah. Oh, you can walk it. People do. But you can't take a wagon up it super easily. That's where the problem comes in, yeah. And they can see the pass from where sure. they are, and they can see that there's no snow in the mountains yet, so each family just goes hell for leather up the side of the uh. mountain, hoping to get over it by the second week in November, which is when Hastings' book predicts the earliest snowfalls. So they've got a couple weeks. The terrain isn't that terrible. They know that this other party has been up and over it, like a few days before. Uh, however... <laughs> Even at their speediest, they are, again, incredibly slow. Yeah. The Donners are at the very tail end of the party by now. They have a broken axle, and George is injured when they stop and try to replace okay. it. And on November 1st, the weather, which had obviously not read Hastings' right. book, turns cold and begins to yep. snow. So the Donners are stuck there with their broken wagon. Yep. They build a little camp on a creek off the Truckee River, and they settle in to wait for the end of the snow. Their idea is that they're going to fix the wagon. They're okay. going to kind of make it up the mountain before the snow gets any worse. The rest of the party stops about half a mile ahead of them, so a half a mile closer to the pass. Okay. They're on the east edge of Truckee Lake, okay. and they find a cabin there Ooh. that someone had built a few years before. Well, don't get excited. We're talking like a pile of logs sure. and some very old branches. Dirt, dirt floors, roofs made out if of pine there boughs, even was a floor. that sort of stuff. Oh, well, it probably needed a new roof. But wow. it is a cabin, so they can build a bunch of little shelters yep. there to ride out the snow. Because they're in the forest now. They have these trees sure, around sure, them. Sure, sure, sure. 
So at first they think that this early snow is going to stop and they can make it over the pass when the sun comes out and it gets a little warmer. But a real snowstorm hits four days later. Mm. It lasts eight days and dumps feet of snow. This Mm. is one of those huge Sierra Nevada storms that are just ridiculous. Okay, so... (laughs) Dear listeners, if you are not familiar with the Sierra Nevada storms, um, they are impressive. They are impressive. They're some of the worst storms on the planet. They really are impressive. I don't recommend that you read this book, Ordeal by Hunger, by George R. Stewart, but I do recommend that you read his book, Storm, which is published in, gosh, the 1940s or 50s. It's just about a storm in the Sierra Nevadas. It's incredible. I love it. Uh, But anyway, we're talking like 10 and 12 foot drifts. So they have livestock they can't shelter or even keep track of. They're wandering off and dying in the snow. They have shelters they can't keep warm. Right. Or, like, keep the roofs from collapsing. And they have a supply of food that is not adequate for any one family for more than a couple weeks. So this is the point where they are just completely screwed. There's nothing they can do from this point onward to make things any better for themselves right now. So they can't go hunting because there's no food to hunt. They can't go fishing. Not necessarily. So they can hunt a little. They don't know how to fish. Right. They're right on the edge of a lake that is not frozen, that is full of trout. They, they don't know how to catch them. They don't know how them. to catch them, yep. Okay. Right. They can catch things like, they get really lucky with the bear. <laughs> they can catch things like deer yep. before the snow gets too but deep. But then the snow gets too deep and they're gone. Right. And they can also catch things like mice. Uh. So what they're eating when they first settle down are their livestock, their remaining horses and yep. cattle. Then they're eating their dogs. And their oxen have all died, right? Absolutely. But what they do is they skin the oxen and eat the hide after the meat is gone, or they've eaten what they can of the meat. Gotcha. Uh, The other thing that's kind of keeping them in place and not making them want to kind of get themselves out, like with whatever losses, is that they're carrying quite a bit of money. Got it. So the Donners and the other families in the group are just above average wealthy, and they're carrying a lot of cash, Uh, most of which is in the form of gold and silver coins, which which is built into their wagon beds. Oh, God. Which you can't eat. So if they leave, I mean, you can't eat, but also they're heading to make a whole new life for them, a whole new life for themselves in California. So, you know, they're going to need money to buy land, houses, Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, it makes sense. And these are wealthy people. These are people who are accustomed to solving their problems with money, which, you know, is not... I can see where you would fall into this thinking of, I'm going to take enough food, but I'm also going to take a ton of cash because I'm going to need sense. to buy things. It makes sense. And just not realizing that there's nothing to buy. Uh, yeah. They do trade a little bit among themselves. Someone sells a cow for... Sorry, a head of beef for $25, oh. which is, I don't know, That's way above yeah, market value. yeah. Uh, But at this point, you know, they have all this money, but their most valuable asset is that this one teamster from Vermont knows how to make snowshoes. Okay. Okay. So after the storm ends, they dig themselves out of the snow and they try to build some more livable shelters. And a couple weeks later on December 16th, they realize that the snow is not getting any less of a problem. They are not magically finding any more food. And their very last effort as a community is to form a party to go for help. Okay. So this is a group of the healthiest people. And it includes nine men, five women, and a 12-year-old boy. 
Oh, gotcha, gotcha. This is these. This is the forlorn hope people, right? They don't call themselves that, and I've avoided calling themselves that because McLashing comes up with it. It's a military term for like a band of outriders that yeah. gets cut off from the main part of the army, and it just is not. I don't think they see themselves as a forlorn. And McLashing was a jerk, so we don't need to. Refer and McLashing was problematic in his own way. <laughs> Uh, so I don't want to give them the satisfaction. I'm going to call them the snowshoe party. We're going to call them the snowshoe party. I love it. Doesn't that sound I, fun? I, it sounds more fun. It's a snowshoe, than, party. Yeah, snowshoe party. Uh, so you've been snowshoeing, I right? have, but uh, not when people's lives were on the line. So just physically uh, snowshoeing or trying to walk in this kind of snow in just nonstop bad weather, because of course it doesn't no. let up. These people have terrible luck. Uh, they're also at a higher elevation than they're used to. They're from pretty much sea level, and now they're operating at 7,000 feet, feet yeah. which does a number on your body. Yeah. The temperature never gets above freezing. God. So they're constantly shivering, yep. uh, which burns calories. Yep. They're in this incredible wind. They are getting frostbite because they do not have adequate winter clothing because, again, they didn't think they were going to be in the snow. So if you remember, they were not eating much. They were kind of on rations before they got to the right. mountains. And they were eating even less after they made it to Truckee Lake. So it's been like six weeks of sitting in the snow and just starving. Yeah. Uh, they're already severely underweight and malnourished. They don't have camping equipment. They don't have truly warm clothes. And they're also all snow blind, so they can barely see where they're going. Yeah. I read a paper that kind of estimated that they were burning something like 6,000 calories a day. Mm -hmm. And they each had about half a pound of meat with yep. them for the whole trip. Yep. Of course, they get caught in a blizzard eight days later. Uh, three of the men die within hours of each yep. other, probably of hypothermia or exhaustion or malnutrition. Yep. Their companions realize that they need to eat them yep. if they're going to make it to help. Yep. They're just, they're at that point. Yeah. Uh, they do not have another option. By the time the blizzard is over, they've realized they've made it through the pass. They're headed downhill towards Bear Valley. They can actually, from certain points, see green grass in the distance ahead of them, which had to have been <laughs> motivating. Yeah. They do manage to kill a deer at one point, yeah. and that buys them another couple days. Uh, unfortunately, another man freezes to death, and two more people are murdered to yep. be eaten. They called them Salvador and Luis, and they were Miwok, and they were trying to help out these idiots, but they were also trying to make their way across themselves. They didn't, they, they were, they were as stuck as everybody else was. They didn't have any extra resources or secret knowledge. Yeah, exactly, knowledge. exactly. They probably would have died. Yep. They were in really bad but shape. It it's is still that extra step. <clears throat> so eventually... Uh, when they're through the worst of the snow, they eat their snowshoes. Yes. That is yep. that is the point that we are yes. at. They're so desperate. Yeah. They do not have enough calories. They're going crazy from the malnutrition. So a month and a couple days after they leave Truckee Lake, the surviving seven people, that seven people out of a party of, what was it, 16, 17? 17. Uh, seven people yep. make it to a Miwok settlement. And they just collapse. Yeah. The Miwok feed them, treat their frostbite, and take the lone surviving man who's in the best shape to a place called Johnson's Ranch, where he's finally able to ask for help for the people that they have left behind at Donner Party, including his wife and two small children. Now, this is not the first time that someone has rode into Johnson's Ranch 
and asked for help for the Donner Party. Do you remember our rich businessman murderer James, from uh, James chapter one? Reed, that's right. <laughs> uh, he was exiled, but he was like, you know, fine, I wanted to go. Uh, he goes out across the pass on horseback, has a wonderful ride, sure. makes it a cross in uh, plenty of time makes the hundred miles across the valley the snowshoers actually end up taking a route that is closer to 150 oh miles gosh, because they get lost james reed just rides down off the mountain and it takes him like a week okay fair enough uh rolls into johnson's ranch this is still october you know yep he makes a deal with uh our next problematic uh, white man john, john c fremont yep. <laughs> that's the one uh-huh. Fremont, quick sidebar, is an explorer. He's a U.S. Army officer. He's currently occupied with trying to kick the Mexican army out of California so it can be his empire. Yeah. He's he's Hastings, part two. Yeah. Uh, Fremont, actually, I would argue, is worse. He is uh, a total slimeball. He goes on to commit a number of war crimes, yep. including murder and possibly genocide, yep. and later becomes a U.S. senator. You know, get, get rewarded for that bad behavior, folks. Well, I mean, Reed is also a murderer and an exile. Yes. At the time, he kind of requests help from Fremont. Fremont is busy trying to capture Santa Barbara, so they make a deal. Okay. Reed has military experience, okay. and uh, Fremont wants to send him to take care of some things in Santa Barbara slash San Jose. If he assists with that, Fremont will send help to aid the Donner Party to get through the last hundred miles of their trip. Okay. But... He's got to wait until February. Uh-uh. Fremont's argument is that there is just not enough in the way of supplies and manpower to send anybody out right away because there is a war going on. Sure. He's got his hands tied. He simply, simply can't. can't help. I'd, He's I'd... got war crimes to commit. Uh, for whatever reason, Reed agrees to this. He does try to <clears throat> ride back with some supplies. Okay. He makes it up the pass, almost up to the pass. The same snowstorm that catches the party at Truckee Lake blocks the pass oh, okay. before he can get over it so he has to turn so he has back. to turn oh, around God. yep he turns around and goes to san jose okay. james reed doesn't seem to have made much of an impression on uh, the people at sutter's fort he's one guy he's in fairly good shape okay they don't really believe that he is part of this giant wagon train that is starving okay. uh when the surviving members of the snowshoeing party reach sutter's fort they make a much larger impression on the locals. Oh, God, of uh, for one thing, they're almost all young women. Okay. Right? All five of the women survive, and they're between the ages of uh, 18 and 21. They are obviously starving. Yep. They're in absolutely terrible shape. And immediately, the residents of Sutter's Fort, most of whom are fresh immigrants themselves, okay. they put together supplies and start building relay camps for the rescue effort. Nice. So along that hundred miles, they're planning to like cash food yep. and supplies so that they can get people out faster and more easily. Nice. Okay. It takes a full month to get this stuff together. Okay. So even though people are donating money, time, it, it's manpower, still it still takes yeah. a full month. Yeah. Fremont isn't wrong. There is a war going on. Supply chains are not what they should right. be. Uh, it is more difficult than it otherwise would have been to put together a rescue effort. Okay. Okay, so at some point, Reed joins this effort. He gets done. <laughs> he gets done with his military service and goes back to look for his wife and children. On February 4th, they set out and they make it to the camp at Truckee Lake 10 days later. Oh, okay. So what they find is pretty horrible. Yeah. I don't know what you're picturing, but uh, this is worse. Great. 
So since the snowshoers left in early December, the survivors have eaten all their cattle, all their horses, uh, their dogs, whatever mice and rabbits they were able to find in the snow. At some point, they become too weak and too disoriented to hunt. So since then, they've been surviving on boiled ox hide. So leather. Yep. And like whatever gelatin comes out of that. Yep. Uh, bones, bark, and twigs. Okay. And they cook this all together with melted snow into, uh, Stuart describes it as a soup. It sounds more like glue. Yeah. With all the bones. Uh, no, because pudding is delicious. <laughs> I don't want to associate. I, I'm, I feel more comfortable calling it glue. Fair enough. It's a paste. It's, it's a, a paste, paste okay. obviously. And you get you get a little spoonful oh, every day. God, or, just, yeah. I, I, uh, okay. All right. It's depressing. Just imagine weeks and weeks of paste. Yeah. The smell, too. The smell yeah. must have been horrible. George Donner's got gangrene, so the smell's got to be yep. super great. Ugh. Yeah, things aren't great with the Donners. They've got all those little kids plus, uh, yeah, gangrene. So obviously that's not a lot to eat. And since the snowshoers left, 13 people have died of malnutrition. The survivors are in absolutely terrible shape. They're in a lot of pain. Some of them are delusional. Only about half of them are healthy enough to hike out with the rescuers. So 23 people are kind of together enough and healthy enough to make the trip. That's after the rescuers feed them. So the rescue party has carried in these packs of supplies. They leave most of that for the people at camp to ration out and hopefully get a little healthier. They use the caches on the way back, right? Uh, unfortunately, animals break into those caches. Oh, come and on. <laughs> the rescue party, they cannot catch a break at this point. Oh, I'm sorry. God. Uh, they almost starve again before they make it back to Sutter's Fort. There's a story that might be apocryphal about one of the rescuers uh, feeding one of the children the fringe off his rawhide yeah. trousers. Yep. Yeah, and their shoelaces. I had read that. Yeah. Which, I don't know. Is that better than the glue? Uh, marginally, sure. Why not? Fringe just sounds better to me. It sounds cheerier. Yeah, it's like jerky. Sure, only Only with no nutritional value. (laughs) It's like food. It's closer to food. And a bunch of the people on that sort of trip back died as well, right? Right. So three more of the Donner party die of the trip. The Kiesenberg's daughter, who's a toddler, (sighs) dies of malnutrition. Uh, Her mother barely survives this. I can't imagine. Yeah. Their infant son has already died at the lake. Oh, God. And another younger boy dies of refeeding syndrome, which is a complication of starvation recovery. Yeah, he he ate too much food and died. Yeah. Well, it's more complicated than that. It throws your electrolytes out of balance and it causes brain damage. It's a really horrible, painful way to go. Oh, God. And the rescuers do know that they have to feed people slowly. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. This boy broke into a storage cache and just yeah. ate whatever he could. I mean, he couldn't stop himself from eating. I think one of the hardest ones for this was the, the mom who had to, um, she had, she had four kids. Two of them couldn't be moved mm-hmm. and two of them could. And so she had to decide, you know, who was, who, if she was going to go with the kids in the trip, you know, to safety, or if she was going to stay with the ones and just, uh, yeah, that's the Reed kids. Yep. And you see some element of separation between almost every parent oh, yeah. and child. Oh, yeah. I this. mean, we've already seen it with the snowshoe party. You had parents leaving their kids behind to try to save them. I get it. It's just, right. it's hard. At this point, 
most of the kids who are old enough to walk on their own are gone. Yeah. You know, their parents have just handed them over to the rescuers, yeah. even if they themselves were not well enough to make the trip, which I can't imagine. <sighs> All right. So. Okay. So on March 1st, another rescue party gets to the camp at Truckee Lake okay. and they find the 21 people left behind, again, mostly little kids, are still surviving. Okay. So George Donner is dying. Yep. He still has that gangrene. Yep. Louis Kiesberg has a serious leg injury. He's also delusional. Okay. He's already a scary guy. And at this point, people are just like, don't look him in yep. the eye. He's living on his own. Uh, his wife has been evacuated and his two children are dead. Okay. Uh, there is evidence, the rescuers mentioned this briefly, that Jacob Donner's body has been disinterred. He was buried in the snow yep. after dying. Uh, and is being eaten. Okay. 17 people are well enough to hike out with the second party. Because, again, they have that food yep. that the rescuers left, yep. and they've been rationing it out. They're slowly getting healthier. Yep. Uh, several of them, again, don't make it. Okay. At the very end of this party is three men carrying George and Tamsin's remaining children, so their younger daughters. Okay. The three men don't want to take their the children because they know they'll have to be carried yep. most of the way there is like an actual baby in this group okay. george is dying and tamsin won't leave him okay. so one of the survivors describes tamsin handing over a vast amount of cash yeah about forty-five thousand dollars in today's money to get the three girls safely out uh which he did okay okay although he was not very nice about it if you read uh Eliza Donner's memoir, one of her earliest memories is being carried by this guy, and he sets her down. He has to tell her to walk. She's like three years sure. old. He's making her walk, and he does it by telling her that she'll get a lump of sugar when they get to camp. Okay. <laughs> and she throws this god-awful tantrum when they get to camp, and there's no sugar. Oh That's <laughs> There's something about that story. It's just such a three-year-old thing to do. It's perfect. Oh it's perfect for a three-year-old, yeah. because a three-year-old cannot see past that moment no i don't yep. care that we're all dying you didn't tell me the truth about sugar mr eddie who has lost his wife and his own children yep. is the man who's responsible for her oh okay and i honestly don't know how he does this but he gets all three of the girls to safety okay uh that leaves five people still stuck at Truckee lake and the, th the third relief is more of a salvage effort what they find is something unexpected and really horrific. So they're expecting to find dead bodies. Yep. That does not bother them. Yep. They're expecting to find what they're there really to do is to get the property and the cash and the valuables from the wagons and bring them down to Sutter's Fort before they get stolen because the snow is melting. Yep. And when the snow is melting, people use this pass. They're going to come across this camp and they what they want is to get the money out of the mountains so that the kids can be taken yeah, care exactly. of. Exactly, yeah. So when they get to the camp, they find they're not expecting to find anyone alive. Right. <laughs> they find Lewis Kiesberg in perfect health. Yep. With a, uh, uh, all things considered, with a his pot. leg is healed. <clears throat> so he's definitely cooking something. Yep. Uh, he also has a surprising amount of the Donner family's gold and valuables tucked into his bag. Yes, he does. He tells the salvagers or the rescuers that the other four adults he had been left with died one by one of natural sure, causes. Yeah, naturally. 
and that he had survived by eating not them, but the cattle carcasses he's found in the melted snow. Yep. That's what's cooking on the pot, gentlemen. Yep. And that Tamsin Donner had given him the money, the money and properties yep. so that he could give it to their children because the Donner girls are now orphans. Yes. However. Uh, that certainly could have happened. <clears throat> there is no one there to say either way what happened. Yep. Uh, every single other person in the camp is dead. Almost every single person who hears this story, including the rescuers, the newspaper reporters, uh, George Stewart, yep. they happily go with the idea that Keysburg murdered and ate the Donners before robbing them. Well, uh, from what I understood, it was they found him, like, not only with all of the Donners, you know, property and such, um, mm -hmm. they also they also were able to determine that the substance in the stew pot was human flesh. They were not. Okay. All right. That comes from an early news reporter news uh, article. Good old yellow journalism. Yeah. Well, they're interviewing these rescuers and these rescuers are just like appalled. They make some assumptions. They are not able to say for sure what was in the pot. Gotcha. Okay. Uh, it is possible they could have been cattle pieces. Sure. Okay. It is also possible they could have been donor pieces because, again, there are bodies that show yeah, evidence of, of survival cannibalism. Exactly, exactly. That's not disputed by the survivors. And um, and it's not disputed that Keysburg had already partaken in cannibalism. He'd eaten uh, William Eddy's son after his son died, and Eddie told him that if I ever meet you in California, I will kill you. Okay, that is not something that came from Keysburg. That is a story that came from another survivor. Keysburg denied it. Okay, all right. I saw that in the... Eddie did indeed try to kill him. The book by... Eddie Rick. was out of his mind by with grief. Oh, God, He lost yes. his wife and his two children. Uh, it is not... I don't know that that's accurate. Because what makes me think it might not be the truth is that uh, Louis Keysburg is held for six counts of murder when he gets to Sutter's Fort. He's never prosecuted because there's no evidence. There are no chewed up human bones in his cabin. It could have happened the way he says. It's basically reasonable yeah. doubt. No, I get it. I get it. There exists a reasonable doubt that it happened the way he said. Okay. He's a terrible person. He's not a great we don't dude. like him. Yeah. Nobody liked yeah. him. Uh, his own wife did not like nope. him, although she went on to have another eight children with Goodness him. Goodness gracious. Uh, he was able to win a libel suit against the salvage party members who claimed that they found human remains wow. that he was chewing okay, on. Right. So that tells me that they just didn't have, didn't have the, the evidence. evidence. Got it. I'm not saying it didn't happen. Gotcha. Gotcha. We are, we are inserting nuance. <sighs> but he still sucks, right? We can agree that he's a terrible person. He sucks, <laughs> but for the rest of his life, he undoubtedly suffers from severe PTSD. He is a mess. I mean, he's a mess going into this. Yeah, he's a real a mess, mess by the time out, he gets out. It. Yeah. Uh, uh, he doesn't win. Like, he wins this libel suit. He gets awarded a dollar. Oh. You know? Oh, man. It's that kind of thing. Nobody likes him. Nobody wants to be around him. Wait a minute. Wait a minute. You left out the best part. They awarded him a dollar in damages, but also made him pay the court costs. Yeah. Yeah. It's that kind of... You know, yeah, real victory gotcha. that you love to see. Gotcha. <laughs> uh, he is reunited with his wife. He does move to California. They stay married. Again, they have eight more children. Fair enough. He outlives them all. Jesus. And he dies in a charity hospital in 1895. He does not run a steak restaurant. I don't know where this rumor comes from. What? 
There's a so in a couple of articles, li- like listicle kind of sure. articles, they're like he ran a famous steak restaurant. What? He did no. not. He ran a brewery. It's his his uh, occupation was distillery and distilling and, and brewing, and that's what and he did. And for what it's worth, Eliza Donner believed him to be innocent. So whatever. Yes. So what are you gonna do? Uh, you know who the real villain is here, Lansford Hastings. <laughs> I mean, his hands are not clean. But thanks to the media's interest in Keysburg, the admitted and witnessed murders of Luis and Salvador for food, yeah. which nobody was ever prosecuted for, yeah. uh, and the descriptions that the rescue parties gave of just sheer cannibal horror, I mean, they go out of their way to make it as disgusting oh, and sure. horrific as possible. Sure. Uh, it this, The whole story is just inextricably linked to survival cannibalism. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, to me, that's not the most interesting angle. We know that humans will eat each other when they get hungry enough. To, yeah. to me, a far more interesting way to look at this story is through the women. Absolutely. Yeah. Right? Yep. Particularly the moms and how they behaved under tremendous pressure. They had zero power in the decision-making yep. that went into this disaster. Yep. And they were unbelievably tough about the circumstances. Uh, Stuart, I hate to keep harping on how much I dislike this book. He does occasionally toss them a compliment about how pious and devoted they were, particularly when we see Tamsin Donner stay behind to take care of George Donner. I feel like Stuart and the contemporary newspaper reports both kind of get uncomfortable around the actual horrible trials the women get through and tried to get their kids through and the amount of just hardcore work and sacrifice that, you know, up to and including their own lives that, you know, cost them even from the beginning of the trip to the worst of the winter. Uh, For instance, Margaret Reed, as you mentioned, nursed her dying mother through consumption, which is contagious, isn't it? Yeah. Oh yeah. Tuberculosis is no joke, dude. That's during the first part of the trip. Like, they're barely out of independence yeah. when this is going on. Uh, Lavina Murphy was a single mother to five teenagers and brought along not only all five, but her two sons-in-laws and three toddler grandkids. Wow. And she stayed on at the camp after the first rescue to care for the nine kids who were too frail to hike out, some of which who had already been orphaned. Okay. Uh, Elizabeth Kiesberg, as we mentioned, gave birth a few days before she walked across the Great Salt Desert with her newborn in her arms. Yeah. Uh, the five teenage girls in the snowshoeing party are somehow able to make it all 150 yep. miles through the snow for help when almost all the older, heavier men with them froze or starved to death or murdered each yep. other. there is that. Uh, finally, we get to Mrs. Jacob Donner, who cared for her husband while he starved to death and then cooked his organs and fed them to their children, ages nine, six, yeah. four, seven, and one, without telling them where it came from. Days yeah. before she herself died of malnutrition because she fed her kids instead of herself. Yep. I, I did read about that. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, the moms and the women who were along in the Darner party accomplished something really incredible. Yeah. So they're on this party, which is already really child heavy, right? Yeah. Only 48 people of the 90 people who set out survived that winter. Yep. 32 of those people are children. Yeah. And I think a truly, like, startlingly high percentage of them go on to leave normal, happy human lives. Well, there's a lot of trauma, but at the same time, you know, we're in a period of history where people didn't talk about trauma, so... I feel like their baseline is a lot higher than ours. Agreed. Agreed. 
Agreed. You have to be tough as nails to make it through something like that. And there was, I mean, Nancy, the one that I did read about was Nancy Graves, who, um, Mm -hmm. she apparently lived with absolutely crushing guilt for the rest of her life due to the cannibalism. And she was nine years old when it happened. I mean, can you imagine just condemning yourself at nine? Uh, she's old enough to understand what's going on at that age. That's a really tough age, but she's not old enough to really have any kind of agency or like framework to justify or understand even what's going on. So she was in a really bad. And there are no therapists. So there's no one to talk her through that. There are no therapists. There is no therapy. I will say this. Mary (laughs) Graves. Did you hear about what happened to Mary Graves? uh, After once she grew up, is she the one whose husband was murdered? Yeah, so her husband gets killed. She cooks his food. She cooks food for the guy who killed her husband while he was in prison uh, to to make sure that he didn't starve to death before they hanged him. Like, yeah. that says something about a person. And uh, She's hardcore. Yeah, she is hardcore. But, you know, nobody talks about the ladies of the Donner Party. Nope. I feel like we had to give them a shout no, out. I agree. Uh, cannibalism, starvation, and perversion is uh, what we are interested yep. in when we talk about the Donner That's Party. That's what we do. The University of Oregon sponsored an archaeological study on the hearth site of the Donner's camp by the creek. Okay. So that's the smaller camp where Tamsin and George were camping out. Yep. They were looking for evidence of the cannibalism described by survivors and uh, the rescue party. So they're looking in the area where Lewis Kiesberg supposedly had his boiling pot of human brains. Uh, indeed, they did find thousands of bone fragments, something like 16,000 buried in the same spot that they could tell had come from that encampment. Uh, this included over 100 that had been recognizably boiled or cooked and could be linked to a known species. Okay. Uh, none of those were human. Oh. They were kind of a mashup of the Donner Party's own animals, including dog, horse, oxen, beef, wild game. Sorry, and beef. And uh, kind of on top of that was a layer of wild game. So mice, deer, and rabbits. They did not find any evidence of cannibalism, which, of course, is not proof that it didn't happen. Uh, They just, the scene was not as human bone heavy as you would expect if uh if all the rumors were true yeah okay well if the description was accurate the description that made its way into the newspapers in the spring of 1847 if that was accurate you would expect to find a lot more okay but certainly could have maybe maybe people just cleaned up better cool maybe they had a special spot (laughs) i don't know i don't know did you there are pictures out there though of the the stumps of trees that were cut down during the snowfall. Yeah, that's an incredible picture. <laughs> yeah, you're looking at like the stump of a tree, only it's twenty, 20 something or twenty five feet up. Yeah. Feet up. Yeah. The top of the tree is missing. Yeah. That's because that's what was available to them for firewood. Yep. Yeah. Uh, Truckee Lake is now known as Donner Lake, and the eastern end is a state park. The other end is a fancy ski resort. Okay. Uh, because the area around the pass is a famous destination for skiing and hiking. Okay. Right? Fresh powder. Am I right? Okay. All right. (laughs) We love to snowshoe in that fresh, fresh powder. Uh, This is also going (laughs) to... This is going to make you smile. 
the 150 mile route taken through the pass by the snowshoers who went for help. Oh, the Hastings shortcut. Is now. Oh, no, the other one. Sorry. <laughs> no, this is way past yeah, the Hastings yeah, 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 shortcut. Sorry. Although that would be a fun. Anyway, okay. uh, this 150 mile route is now the race course for an ultra marathon endurance run. Okay. I, I, That's right. I have no problems with that. Whatever. But I'm curious about this. I didn't look into it as much as I should have. And okay. I'm curious if they run in the winter and if they run on snowshoes. And I'm going to uh, guess no. What, <laughs> I'm going to guess no to all they that. Eat, what they eat along the way. Somebody leave them bags of beef jerky. <laughs> but they're buried in the snow. You have to Only the animals out. have gotten into yep. them. <laughs> yep. I mean, that would, Ugh, that would This be is fun. such a good right. story, man. But, like, it is important to kind of bring up the, you know what actually happened because you're right when most people hear about it they just think oh donor party they ate each other and there's there's a okay lot the ghoulish part is not the cannibalism the, ghoulish part the is cannibalism the is survival yes the no. cannibalism is, is about survival it's the people who sent them the wrong way to make a quick buck the people who shot other people to eat them like that's where you get ghoulish the ghoulish part is the way the story has been written about sure i think absolutely i'm with you because you have accounts like Stuart, who's putting together historically, you know, yeah. like this, there yeah. is quite a lot of first person evidence from this. You have diaries, it, letters. It only happened 170 Descriptions, years ago. contemporary descriptions. Yeah. But that's not what people who write about this really run with. Yeah. They take this kind of flowery, horrifying, yep. like vampire story, yeah. <laughs> almost prose from the newspaper and from Stuart's accounts. And they're just like, oh, my God, it was a bloodbath. There was so much cannibalism. Yep. No. There's, there's more to it. I think that should be our, yeah. <laughs> our tagline for this episode. The Donner Party. There's more to There's it. so much more than you think. Yeah. I mean, that's what you find when you dig into anything about history. It is not what you think it is on the surface. I mean... Although we gave you slightly exaggerated credentials at the top of the show, we do fact-check our stories in an effort to give you the best disaster experience possible. If you'd like to read more about our sources, a complete bibliography is available in our show notes. If we got anything wrong, please let us know. And at this point, I do, do I need to make a correction about the uh, the Black Sox episode with this one? Oh, yes, Okay, please. so we did have an Instagram uh, follower point out to us that I messed up a fact. Uh, I had said that the, that the year after the spitball was banned, Babe Ruth took the home run record from 7 to 54. That was inaccurate. That was inaccurate. and and That was what, Greg? I, I, inaccurate. It was a mistake. And you were... I, I was wrong. You were what? I was wrong. You were man. wrong. Okay. I got it. I, oh, that feels so, so good when you say it that. It does, doesn't it? I got something wrong and somebody let us know. The system works. Uh, I also get things wrong. I don't mean to sound no, like... You you're you're oh, the older okay. sister. You never get anything wrong. I do a lot of fact-checking, but I still get things wrong. So if I got things wrong, if I got something wrong, if, for example, uh, the Donner Party was not the way I described it, I would like to know. I just, I want to take a moment and uh, appreciate your willingness to be corrected. I think that's a wonderful quality in people. Hey, if you can't can acknowledge that. that you make a mistake, then you're, you're not living life now. All right. All right. Uh, if we made any additional mistakes, you can always let us know by emailing us at relative.disasters at gmail.com. Or if you'd like to shame us publicly, why not do that on Instagram? It's what Instagram's yeah. for. Our handle is at relative.disasters. Thank you so much for joining us for this episode of Relative Disasters. We hope you've enjoyed the story and the discussion. Please join us next time for another strange, dangerous, and interesting event from history. What do you have for us, Greg? 
Well, what can we look forward to? You know, in keeping with our tradition of me choosing really kind of esoteric subjects, uh, we are going to go all the way back to a disaster for the Roman Empire when they tried to uh, conquer the kingdom of Kush and they ran smack dab into a blind in one eye African queen who served Augustus Caesar the only surrender he would ever give in his life. So uh, we are going to we are going to talk about Queen Amanarenas in the next episode. Nice, because she's awesome. Very cool. Can't wait to hear about All it. All right. <laughs>